They'll come to me and say, Dad, you were right all that time. <laughs> Enough fun, okay? Let's stand together. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Proverbs 20, verse 1. The Bible says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Father, thank you for your precious word. Help us, God, to be faithful to it and to you. Challenge our hearts. Draw us near to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. I must confess this morning, it's hard not to approach the scriptures without a bias sometimes. And I don't, I think if we're honest, no matter who we are, we have to admit anytime we do a a study, a lot of times we come with preconceived ideas and even biases in certain directions. And I must confess, I have never drank in my life. I tasted it one time, and the only reason I had tasted that, uh, we hadn't been married very long, had nothing to do with the issue, but it was a warm uh, night before Thanksgiving, uh, and I used to hunt coons at night. I never had any good dogs, but I had friends that did. And this particular night, it was a real, uh, extremely warm night for November, even in southern Illinois. And we'd gone out, and we lost our dog. They had chased him. I mean, we got quite a few coons that night. And uh, uh, But nonetheless, we walked and walked and walked, and I was thought I was going to thirst to death. I wasn't about, I mean, I, you know, I thought I was. So one guy had, I think, a bottle of beer with him. He wasn't drunk. I said, give me a sip of that. Well, that's the only time I ever remember tasting it, and I think I spit it out. Uh, you know, now I'm the kind of guy, if it doesn't taste good the first time, I don't want it a second time. Now, I, again, I've, I've never drank other than that, but I can't imagine, and I could be wrong, I doubt it, but I could be, anybody who ever tasted that stuff the first time said, man, that sure tasted good. Well, anyway, enough said. So I confess, I come to this subject a little biased when I talk about and preach about the Christian and alcohol. Most of you know my grandmother was Pentecostal. Now, she would have been the old-time Pentecostal. Uh, she didn't believe in a lot of this hoopla that was going on today. Uh, she went in the name it, claim it, claim it kind of get the person. She believed uh, if you're going to claim it, you better live it. Okay, now we still didn't agree on some things. That's okay. She was one of the most godly people I've ever known. And, of course, in that kind of background, there was no alcohol at all. But it's become a topic today, especially in the Christian world today. Is it okay for a Christian to drink alcoholic beverages? Now, there's a lot to be said on this topic. And I was telling Jeremy last night, I said I've Googled it quite a few times this past several weeks. And you can find one person that's totally wrong. Another group said it's okay. And they're divided right down the middle. But let's look a little bit at what the Bible says. And, and one thing I do want to point out to you this morning. You will never find a verse where the Bible says, do not drink alcohol. It's not there. But I'm convinced there are enough in the Word of God that would warn us not to drink 
any kind of alcoholic beverages. Now, I don't know how far I'm going to go with this. We've been on it for several weeks now. Uh, there's a lot more to be said about that. I mentioned last week, and I'll, I'll just touch on it today a little bit, maybe in more detail down the road a little bit. I don't know yet. But we have to understand, you have to compare apples with apples. Okay? Now, let's look at our text this morning, and of course we read some others in Proverbs over the last few weeks. And the Bible is very clear about it. Wine does seem attractive. When it's red, when it sparkles in a cup. In fact, wine is certainly smooth to the senses of our sight and our taste. But the problem the Bible says about wine is that eventually becomes devastating and can hurt as bad as a snake bite. Very painful. And we mentioned several weeks ago there are a lot of warnings both in the Old as well as the New Testament uh, about the dangers of alcohol, especially becoming drunk with it. And we're not going to go through all those. We did that several weeks ago. And so again, we read in Proverbs again this morning, uh, the warning of becoming drunk with wine is very, very clear. Now we've, we went a few weeks ago and we, we, we shared some of the facts about some of the Hebrew words and Greek words for wine. We're not going to do that again. We've already spent some time on that. And I'm sure that you can go on our website and rehash if you'd like to. But the bottom line is, uh, whether the Bible speaks of wine or something stronger than wine, either of these, if they're unmixed, they had the potential to make someone drunk. We read from Ephesians 5, let's read it again this morning, verse 18. Last week we read it. Paul says, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, Ephesians 5, verse 18, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, just a little bit of an aside this morning. Uh, a lot of people would say, well, Paul is trying to c- compare how wine or alcohol can take over how you behave the way the Spirit takes over how you behave. That's not Paul's point here. In the culture Paul lived in, these were believers who came out of a, a pagan society. And in pagan worship, the way you worship was to become drunk. And they figured the drunker you were, the better you were, better able you were to communicate with those pagan gods. So Paul's point is, when you come to worship, or any time, don't get drunk. That's not what you need. If you want to get in touch with God, allow the Spirit of God to fill your life. That's the whole point of the verse. But when you think about the context of Ephesians 5.18, back in verse 15, <coughs> we're not going to read it. Read it for yourself later on. But Paul begins to give a warning to Christians on how we are to live our lives. And Paul says, if you're a child of God, don't live your life like a fool. Paul says, live like those who are wise. And whatever you do, understand what the will of God is for your life. And so without a doubt, in verse 18, it's very plain. Paul said, one thing we are not to do 
is to be drunk with wine. Now remember, the whole context of this letter to the Ephesus is that as Christians, we are to walk worthy of our calling. Somebody say amen. We're to walk worthy of what Christ has called us. God has chosen you and I. If you're a child of God, he's chosen us to be his representative in this world. And in the light of this truth, Paul says, we are to walk worthy of the calling we have, and that calling that we have is a privilege of being called the Son of God, a child of God. What a privilege that is. And Paul says, walk worthy of that privilege. And one thing Paul says, if you're going to walk worthy, you will not allow yourself to become intoxicated. You simply won't do it. Now, as I mentioned last week, all of us would agree, I think most of us would, it's a sin to get drunk. And the question is, well, what about occasional drinking? I mean, I don't get drunk. I, I just have one here, here and there. I just drink socially. Now, by the way, from what I understand in, in my readings the last month or two now, the good news is in our culture, in America anyway, alcohol consumption is on the way down. Thank God for that. Now, that's not where it ought to be, but it's, it is certainly down from what it used to be. And I give God praise for that. So we agree, yes, it's sin to be drunk, but what about occasional drinking? And what's interesting, and again, like I said, you Google it, you'll find a group that says, it's, it's, and I'm talking about Christian groups now, it's okay to drink, one group says not okay. And both present, present their arguments. But what's interesting, those who would advocate, and I think moderation in drinking, uh, they always appeal to the Bible. And they would say to you and I, well, they drank wine in the Old Testament. Did they? Yes. Well, they drank wine in the New Testament, did they? Yes. Well, Jesus drank wine, did he? I've got to confess, I'm not sure about that. Well, the disciples drank wine. Maybe they did. Maybe they did. But anyway, they said, well, they did. And so that settles it. It's okay to drink in moderation. That's kind of interesting. And I mentioned this, I think, in the last couple of weeks. And I, in my notes, I've got wine in the New Testament. It doesn't matter whether it's wine in the Old or wine in the New. Sometimes it's unfermented juice. Sometimes it's talking about intoxicating wine. So it could go either way. But I think basically from the New Testament, there are two arguments. Those who would say it's okay to drink in moderation, they appeal to. And... We're not going to spend a whole lot more time on it, but I do want to go back to one we mentioned last week. And they would say, well, Jesus drank wine at the Last Supper. Luke chapter 22, verse 18. For I say unto you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So again, did Jesus drink fermented wine? Or was it grape juice, unfermented, when he instituted the Lord's Supper? 
Now, I pointed this out last week, and I know that this cannot be my only hill to stand on. But I find it kind of interesting, the word wine itself, the Greek word for wine, is never used in the New Testament in regards to the Lord's Supper, ever. In fact, all three gospel writers use the word fruit of the vine. And I realized they could say, well, okay, uh, wine, fruit of the vine. I don't agree with that because I think the fruit of the vine is grape juice. But nonetheless, I won't camp on that hill, but that's, I think that's a suggestion there. But second of all, and we're going to read some verses again, we read them last week, the presence and the use of leaven, yeast, or any agent of fermentation was not allowed even in your house during Passover celebration. May I say Passover week. Exodus twelve nineteen. Seven days shall there be not, no leaven found where? In your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leaven, even that soul, shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be stranger or born in the land. Exodus 13, 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. There shall be no leavened bread be seen with thee, neither shall there be leaven seen with thee in all thy quarters. Pretty clear to me, okay? So I would suggest, first of all, they didn't use the word wine pertaining to the Lord's Supper, and I know that's not a hill to camp on. But the scripture does say there was to be no leaven in your house during the period of Passover week. None whatsoever. But the third thing we looked at several weeks ago, any of the priests were never allowed to approach God while they worshipped under the influence of alcohol. They were not allowed to do that. So, I would say, since leaven wasn't forbid, was forbidden during Passover, since the bread could not have leaven, why would the wine be fermented? Is that not an honest question to ask? And because the priests were not allowed to approach God in worship under the influence, having drank fermented wine, why would our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no mistake about it, this celebrated Passover was a type of worship. Why would he? Let's go back to First Peter. I, I touched on that last week, but I want to go into more detail today. Verses 18 and 19. Look, I want, to, I want you to notice the importance of symbolism. Peter says, For as much as ye know, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, that means your lifestyle, received by tradition from your fathers. But, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish, and without spot. Now, I didn't remember to do this, but I thought this past week, and even last week, I wanted to get me one of our communion cups, and I didn't get it. But you were here, I think last week we had communion. And we have the bread, and we have the, the grape juice in that cup. And uh, have you noticed how tasty that bread is? 
I'm being sarcastic, right? I mean, it doesn't taste good. I mean, it doesn't taste bad, necessarily. But it's unleavened bread. Amen? And it can have, you know, and leaven has to do with sin, corruption. And that bread represents what? Come on, speak to me. The body of Christ. And to represent it correctly, it had to be unleavened. But we also have the juice. And as the bread represents the body, the juice represents what? The blood. Was his blood corrupt? No. So I would submit to you, if the bread had to be uncorrupt without leaven, I would suggest the juice had to be unfermented. Otherwise, it would have been corrupt. Hold it. Now, wait a minute. Is that logical thinking or not? Help me out here. Come on. Now, by the way, one other thing, I hate your cell phones. Amen? Because some of you are Googling that right now. Is what he's saying true? I know somebody did last week. I won't tell you his name, Jeremy. <laughs> but uh, then he tried to tell him, well, this is what some old ancient rabbis used. Forget about them rabbis. <laughs> How many know people try to justify anything they want to do? But anyway, I think my thing, thinking is at least logical. But here in Peter, he reminds us what a blessing salvation is. Amen. He reminds us that while, while our salvation is free to us, folks, do you know Jesus paid an enormous price to redeem us, to buy us back? And we shared this morning, it's not that we're redeeming to have the corner on the market. He wants the corner in our lives. And Peter says it cost him his precious blood. Well, someone might ask, well, well preacher, why, why the blood? Look what God says in Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar, notice this, to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And so we know from the time of the Levitical law, the time of the Levitical rites, if you will, blood pay, played an important part in their forgiveness of sins. But the blood that the tradition of the fathers used was the blood of animals, goats and sheep, sometimes turtle doves or even a grain offering. But Peter was not talking about the blood of an animal. He wasn't referring to the blood of a goat or a lamb. Peter was talking about the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God. And understand that His blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, only His sacrificial death on the cross provides effective atonement for our sins. And that precious blood redeemed us. So Christ stands in our place. On, the, on Calvary, on the cross, He paid our penalty of death. And thank God, when Jesus said it is finished, 
He finished meeting the demands of God for sin. It is finished. Even in the Old Testament, the law required if you're going to sacrifice a lamb or any goat or whatever it was that you were sacrificing, it had to be without blemish. It had to be as perfect as it could be. But my friend, that was the Old Testament. And they had to do it over and over and over again. Why? Because that blood could never completely satisfy the demand sin requires. But now, you and I, as New Testament believers, thank God we have our sins covered by the blood of a sinless Savior. A Savior who satisfied all the demands of the law. Thank you, Jesus. And so Jesus has redeemed us that you and I might live our lives for God. There was never a way we could escape our sin from our own. Only the sacrifice of God's Son on our behalf could buy us back, redeem us, and set us free. How many are glad that He did? Amen. So every time... and. And Jesus, no matter how often you do it, do it in remembrance of me. So every time we partake of the bread and the juice, it is a symbol of what Christ has done for us. And the value of any symbol is how much capacity it has to conceptualize a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality. We use unleavened bread, and we use in our communion table unfermented grape juice. So what's the spiritual reality here? Peter says, we haven't been redeemed the corruptible things. That was silver or gold. No. Our redemption, Peter says, is only through the perfect Lamb of God. In Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, precious blood, flawless blood, unblemished blood, but how many know He also had a body that never sinned? Somebody say amen. So we got the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4, 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But was in all points tempted like we at, like as we are, yet without sin. Precious, perfect blood, flawless blood, sinless body. Flawless, unblemished blood, and a body that never sinned. Can anybody here say that? Nobody except Jesus. No one except Jesus. And so just like the bread that we share, just like it has to be unleavened, just like it represents the pure body of Christ, and it had to be unleavened. The Bible is clear about that. It had to be uncorrupted. 
There can be no fermentation there. The bread had to be pure. The fruit of the vine, the grape juice, represents the incorruptible blood of Jesus Christ. And I want to suggest to you, if the bread had to be pure, the grape juice had to be pure. And I think, now again, you won't, you, you won't find a definite answer. Was it permitted or not? You don't read that. I understand that. But I think it would be inconsistent with the goal and the spiritual requirement of the Lord's Supper to use something as a symbol of evil. Something with leaven, something with yeast, or something fermented. So that's one argument those who would condone drinking in moderation among Christians would use. They did it at the Lord's Supper. Now let me say something here very carefully. They would say to me, you can't prove that. They didn't. I would say, you can't prove they did. But I think the argument we presented today holds some water, holds some value if we compare Scripture with Scripture. And the symbol has a very important part here today. The symbol of the bread and the juice. Now remember, whether old or new, wine could be, the word for wine, two different words, one in the Greek, one, several in the Hebrew, main one in, in the Greek, but it could, it could be the one, fermented or unfermented, okay? The context tells you what. But the second biggest argument, probably the biggest one, was Jesus turned water into what? He turned water into wine. John chapter 2. And by the way, this is the first miracle Jesus did, recorded in the scriptures anyway. We're going to pick, up, pick it up in verse 3, then skip down to verse 6. Verse 3, John chapter 2. I've got to make sure Jeremy includes my verses. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy, for doing that, buddy, by the way. John says, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing twenty or thirty gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now. Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said unto him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Hang on to your seat. So did Jesus make wine? Yes. 
But usually what you mean is, when people ask that question, did Jesus make intoxicating wine? I think the answer is no. And I know there are some that don't agree with me. Now, first of all, let's be clear. The Bible doesn't say. The narrative is silent on that point. So then how do we determine the character of the wine? First of all, it depends on the circumstances. Second of all, the occasion. It also depends on the material used. But it also depends on the person making the wine. And it depends on the moral influence of the miracle. So what's the occasion? What's going on? At a wedding. I hate weddings. By the way, I'm getting ready to do one pretty soon. I'm excited about that. There's two Christian people who want to get married. I love that, okay? Uh, but for the most part, reason I don't like them, usually the mother-in-law is trying to, uh, the mother trying to tell the daughter how to do the wedding, you know. And I always, you know, they get in a big fight and they all go home. I don't like that part of it, okay? I always tell the, the bride, hey, and I even tell the husband, this is, your, this is your wife's day. She's the boss or your future wife. Tomorrow you can change if you want to. If you want to live, don't, okay? If you want to live happy, don't change it. But today's her day. I tell the mother of the bride, let her alone. You had your time. This is her time. Let her do it how she wants, okay? So that, that's why I don't like wedding because sometimes the turmoil can bring. But our weddings don't last very long. Uh, I don't last mine long, depending on how much music they want, whatever, you know. But weddings in that day lasted a week. I couldn't have stood that. A whole week. And normally the whole town was invited. Can you imagine that? Now, we're not told how long it had been processed, you know, day one, day two. We don't know. But something happened. They ran out of what? Wine. Now, again, I may go more detail later on, but most wine in that day was mixed with water. Almost exclusively. And so, and again, I'll, I'll explain more of that later on, why that was. So, <laughs> the occasion was a wedding. And it would be an embarrassment to run out of wine. So the material that was used, what did Jesus use to make the wine with? Water. Now I find it kind of interesting, there were these water pots there, and from what the scripture says there, they were there for ceremonial cleaning. It was a tradition, if you will. And I'm assuming that somehow, in that whatever they did, they washed or whatever, their hand, whatever, I don't know. But that's what they were there for. And, you know, Jesus talks to them about that. And so, the material he used was the water. Now, I find it kind of interesting. He used the same material that the clouds poured out. Are you, are you follow me now, okay? The earth then draws it up, the grapevines do, by the roots from the earth. And it passes through the vines and produces grapes 
That when they're squeezed, produce what? Juice. Occasion, a wedding, the material water. What about the person? Who made the wine? Jesus did. And this is the same Jesus who in the beginning fixed that law by which the vine would take the water and convert it into pure, unfermented juice. Hear me. Could God, could Christ have determined, okay, I want the vine to take that water and make fermented juice. Could he have said that? The vine, yes. But he used that water to convert it to pure, unfermented juice. So in our story, the wedding, the occasion, the wine that the family had provided was gone. Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they're out of wine. And so he commands them that they take those six water pots and they fill them to the brim with water. So he commands that somebody draw that water out and take a sample to the master of the feast. Now I wasn't there, but I, I kind of suspect the master tasted that wine. And I'm thinking his first response would have been, Wow. This is the best I've ever tasted. By the way, if Jesus made it, guess what? It's the best. But either way, he pronounced it good wine. Well, preacher, how, how do you know that? Well, he said normally you get a good wine in the beginning. But then, another important factor when you determine how we look at this is the moral influence of the miracle. And that has to be determined by the character of the wine. From what I've read from the scripture about intoxication, I believe that Jesus thought drunkenness was a sin. So I would suggest it would be derogatory of the character of Christ and what the scripture teaches to suppose that he used his miraculous power to produce intoxicating wine. Now remember, we've already read in our text today and several weeks ago, wine is a mocker. It's his biting as a serpent. Stings like an adder. It's like the poison of dragons. Like the venom of asp. But wine is also what the Spirit of God has chosen as an emblem of the wrath of Almighty God. So can we seriously suggest, at least I can't, 
that Christ should by his miraculous power make alcohol. Can we suggest, because he turned the water to wine, can we suggest that by making alcohol, he sanctioned the use of it by giving it to his creatures when nobody knew better than him the terrible effects alcohol can have on people, the lives that it ruins, the eternal ruin of thousands and multitudes through every age. Why would he do that. Why would he come produce alcohol that through the years had plunged multitudes upon multitudes into the depths of eternal damnation? And again, those who would advocate moderate drinking, occasional drinking, will say over and over again, the Bible doesn't specifically say and rule out drinking. It only says don't get drunk. And I would agree with that. But I think it's also clear there's quite enough evidence that the Bible would encourage us not to drink at all. It's been a while since we recited here as, as a corporate congregation. But from time to time we say the Lord's Prayer. And it's really not the Lord's Prayer. John 17 is the Lord's Prayer. But it's an example that Jesus gave for us to follow. And one of the things we're to ask for, Lord, lead us not into temptation. So why? Why would I think that God would lead me in such a powerful temptation? Now, by the way, I realize alcohol is not the only one, but how many would agree alcohol is one of those powerful temptations out there? Lord, lead me not in the temptation. Why would God lead anyone into such a powerful temptation by encouraging them to drink alcohol even in moderation? Now, again, I've never drank. <clears throat> I thank God my parents never drank. I can't say they never took a sip on New Year's Eve. I don't, you know, they had, they had some friends that did. But I've never seen them drink a bottle of alcohol, beer or wine or anything. Uh, growing up, they didn't keep it in the house. And uh, my, my parents were not necessarily faithful Christians. They didn't go to church very often for many, many years. But they never drank. Uh, neither of my grandparents drank. For my grandmother on my mom's side never would, at least if she got saved. But even my grandfather would not say for many years, never drank. My dad's parents never drank. I never saw it. Now, I wouldn't say they wouldn't keep a bottle of wine in my house for a special kid for, for friends. I don't know. But I never saw them drink. So I confess I'm a little bit biased toward Christians when it comes to alcohol. But here's what I do know. And I don't think I'm wrong. There's never been one alcoholic that didn't start with moderate drinking. Would you agree? In fact, I would confess and agree that anyone who ever got drunk 
began with one drink. Lead us not in temptation. Now remember, we've already mentioned this very clearly. Wine could be alcoholic or non-alcoholic. In our culture, wine is almost exclusively used of alcoholic wine. But the danger is when we try to interpret the Bible and that wine using modern day terms. They were not the same. And again, rarely, not necessarily they didn't ever, most wine in the Bible was heavily diluted with water. Okay? Or it was boiled until the alcohol went out. And they they kept the paste and they would use that paste to produce new wine. Grape juice. But I may may deal with that in greater terms a little bit later on. So how do you know? How do you know if it's grape juice or is it intoxicating? Again, and you know, I believe we ought to do this no matter what we preach. It's it's a context where you find the word. And that will let us know, is it alcoholic or is it not alcoholic? So what is the context? Well, I see what time it is, and some of you are getting thirsty. I hope for iced tea, though, okay, or water. Some of you are getting hungry, and I found out when people get hungry, they get mean, and they quit listening. But here's what I want you to know, and we're going to go home. I have never needed wine, any kind of alcoholic beverage. I've never needed any kind of drug to help me enjoy life. As a Christian, God has given us rivers of living water. The Spirit of God in us. He's all we need. And that's why Paul said we're to be filled with the Spirit. Not being filled like he would fill a cup. But filled like the wind would fill a sail. Allow the Spirit of God to motivate how you live. Allow the Spirit of God to move you in God's direction and live a life that is worthy of our calling. And I would challenge each of us here today, whether or not you agree with anything that I said this morning, I think you would agree we are all called to live worthy of our calling in Christ. A life that would honor Him. Let's stand together. Maybe you're listening online this morning. <laughs> and maybe you've been a teetotaler all your life. But don't think that because of that you're going to heaven. You can sell all you have. Give everything you have for the poor. Paul said he can give you body to be burned if you want. You can move on top of a hill in a little run room shack by yourself. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're going to hell. Jesus died that we might have eternal life. He's the only way that we can be saved. And I would challenge you today to consider where you will spend eternity. And I realize, and I I confess this morning, this issue of the wine, it's a secondary issue. I understand that. I realize that. But my friend, my salvation is not secondary. Knowing I'm going to heaven is not secondary. I want, I know I'm going. I want you to know you're going. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, God, 
who ministers to us. Help us, God, to work walk to, to walk worthy of our calling. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Rick, whenever you're ready, please. Thank you, Lord. If you want to come and pray, you can do that. You can pray where you are this morning. You can pray at home. But whoever you are, if you're without Christ, I want you to, I want you to seriously consider where will you spend eternity. It's my, not my job to convince you. It's my job to share the gospel. I'll either keep convincing to the Spirit of God. I'll leave your salvation to the power of God. But I do know that Jesus died for your sins. And He wants you to come and be saved. Christian, He wants us to live lives that are worthy. We call ourselves children of God. Let's live like it. Let's live like it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here this morning. By the way, you can see by the tent, there's some things gathered around it. I think today is the last day uh, to bring stuff in for the uh, Christian Help Center in Batavia. Uh, Jason should be back from their cabin trip later on today, uh, but you can be sure to see him. I'm sure he will not turn you down if you contact him later in the week. But nonetheless, that's that's going for. We thank American Heritage, uh, Rhonda, that group, as well as Life for doing that. Uh, don't forget Tuesday, both groups will meet. Is that correct, Rhonda? Uh, Wednesday, focus. Uh, don't forget about that. Our Bible study. Uh, tonight's service, we're looking how oh, how to overcome uh, loneliness, okay? How to overcome loneliness in our life. How many know that God wants us to draw near to Him? Amen. How many are glad you're saved today? How many are going to live like it? Ooh. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Sit back down. We've got to start over. Hey, we're not going to do that. Hope you have a great day. If you can, come back tonight as we come and to the Lord again and come and worship with us. But if I don't see you, have a great week. And whatever you do, keep God first in your life. Brother Dan Young, would you mind just missing prayer, please? Amen. God bless each one of you. Thank you for coming.